Well, church, let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Proverbs. Uh, The text I want to begin with in our time will come from Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31. We'll be reading verses 10 through 31. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a blue hardback copy near you in a seat rack, and you'll find our text on page 552. Again, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. And I'll remind you, as we have every week, we are in the second portion of our series through Proverbs, where we are considering some of the thematic realities that the the sages give us in Proverbs and kind of building out an understanding of how wisdom applies to these major areas of our lives. And today we're going to approach the subject of family wisdom, building on what we saw last week from relationship wisdom. Now, if you've been around the church uh, in your life or grow up, this text, maybe as you flip to it or you heard it, may sound familiar to you, especially if you are a woman. Even the subheading in our Bibles directs us to see something that the text teaches about. So the not inspired part says, the woman who fears the Lord, which is certainly true in part of these following verses, but it's also quite less than adequate for a description of what follows in these verses. The chief person being described is a wife, yet as we will see like last week, this section of text is not solely directed at women, but at families. So with that in mind, let's read Proverbs 31 verses 10 through 31. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and she delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I remember listening to a podcast sometime back where a a pastor was being interviewed, and he said, I enjoy officiating funerals 
way more than I enjoy officiating weddings. Now, on the surface level, you think perhaps he's being cheeky or dishonest. Uh, But he wasn't. This pastor over decades of ministry, as he began to to think more and reflect on the things that pastors do for the people of their congregations, he began to resonate more with the reality that is present at a funeral and how many weddings, though beautiful, are less connected with what is real. Now, none of us is going to say to a wedding planner, you know what I'm going for is a lot of dark in my wedding. Uh, you know, I want everyone to feel sad vibes when they come in. You know, what, what I'm really going for is I just want everybody that comes to our wedding to have the air taken out of their sails a little bit. No, that's not what we would say. If you said that, I actually want to encourage you um, with the reality that you probably aren't ready to be married at this point. Uh, or if you have already proceeded in wedding that way, uh, wedding that way, counselors are available and plentiful, and you should make yourself avail, avail yourself to that. But the point I'm making is this. If your wedding is past or your marriage is in the future, you are likely looking towards the day with an anticipation of all the joys that come with celebrating earthly love. And that's a good thing. Weddings should not be morose or morbid, for they do usher in a new reality and bond for two people that forever changes them. Yet what I think this pastor was trying to communicate is that many weddings come with a veneer, kind of a plastic overcovering that doesn't match up with the real stuff of life, that doesn't match up with the reality of you being yourself a sinner, getting married to someone else who is also a sinner. Every day is not like the wedding day. Marriage is beautiful, and it is a gift. And yet, just like last week, we should acknowledge and understand that good marriages take hard work. And in a similar way, relating to our parents and relating to our children is a beautiful privilege and a wonderful gift, and it's extremely difficult. Why is that so? Why is it difficult? I think we know the answer. It's because of the reality of our own brokenness that we carry with us, our own sin. It isn't as if you enter into a marriage relationship and at the door you get an option of checking all of your sinful baggage and leaving it behind. We don't live in a world where we parent with perfection. No, as we saw last week, the reality of our fallenness in the fallen world in our, that which we live is the guarantee that we all need to grow in wisdom continually. But church, here's the reality I want to build in from the beginning. I want to remind you of this reality, and it's a gospel reality that applies to our marriages and to our families. The Lord Jesus restores what is broken. The Lord Jesus takes that which is dead and brings it to life. If you leave with anything today in Proverbs, I want you to see that there is hope for you in your marriage. If it's great right now, there's hope for even more greatness. If it's broken right now, there is real hope for real restoration, even if it seems dead right now. There is hope for resurrection in relationships. 
I want you to see that there's hope for you in your marriage, in your parenting, and relating to your parents. There is a wrong way to take all that we're going to cover today and treat them like sticks to beat one another with or to beat ourselves with or to create some threshold that you can never attain to because of what is contained in these verses. That is not my intention. My goal for this morning is that the wisdom of God has given, the wisdom God has given us through the book of Proverbs would be restorative to your soul, restorative to your marriage, restorative to your children, restorative to your families. Don't lose sight. Proverbs contains precious instructions meant to help you pursue Christ and to love your family in a way that reveals the love of God. And one of the things that we saw last week is that this is impossible if you have not first experienced God's love for you in Christ. Remember, we saw last week that the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs assumes an audience that has been reconciled to God. The book is written to those who are a part of God's covenant people. And that doesn't mean that there's nothing for you here if you're not a part of God's covenant people. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If you are far from God this morning, if you have not yet trusted in the Lord, he calls you to him through the voice of the sages in Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 22 and 23. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. We are invited to wisdom's banquet from Proverbs 9, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. And walk in the way of insight. The Lord of the universe has opened the seats to his table of wisdom. And he does this through Christ for us, who beckons broken sinners to turn and trust him. He calls us. Yet the wisdom we have is not only of that one initial rest restoration, the reality of turning to Christ, we also have the hope of ongoing restoration. Because who, is, who would, that, who that is married among us can say, and if you're going to say this, I'm going to encourage you to be quiet in the next few seconds, that you are the perfect spouse, never running afoul of wisdom. That you read every proverb and you're like, yeah, me, 100%. I don't think any of us is going to say that. But again, there's hope offered to us in Proverbs as we seek to grow in godliness and God shapes us even in our marriages into the image of his beloved son. And then as he shapes us into the image of Christ, our marriages receive all of the benefit. Our children receive the blessing of our growth in holiness. So let me, let me start with wisdom in marriages. We're going to do the rest of today broken in two parts, but technically three, but the third part's really short. But we're going to do two parts. I want to ask a couple questions. And the first one deals with our marriages. I want to ask, how does God make our marriages 
wise? Or how can our marriages grow in wisdom? And I think the first way that we, are, we see it in the book of Proverbs is that God does it with joys. With joy, excuse me. How does God make our marriages wise? He does it with joy. So maybe you remember back in chapter 5, a text we covered earlier, where we read in chapter 5, 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. That comes in a small section where the author is praising the gift of marriage. Marriages are a place where God has designed us to rejoice in one another. The context of this statement is in marital intimacy, and yet the rejoicing is not limited to that arena. There is something life-giving about rejoicing in another person, both to the person who's doing the rejoicing and to the person who's being rejoiced in. The picture in Proverbs chapter 5 is a a husband doting on his wife for the sheer purpose of rejoicing in who she is. That his delight is to rejoice in, in the joy of another. Which, if we think about that, runs the exact opposite of how the messages of modern romance would have us live. If we scan shows, songs, books, movies, the message we would receive would tell us that the most wisdom for building relationship exists in seeking what you want most out of the relationship. Seek what you desire most. That's how you build a strong relationship. Whereas the wisdom of God would have us orient our joy on the outside, on our spouses. Much like we saw last week, the key to wise relationships is not being inwardly oriented, but oriented first to God and then outward to others. Brother or sister, what would it look like for you to rejoice in your spouse, because I don't think this wisdom applies only to husbands. What, 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 would, we, what would resemble this rejoicing in another person? I, I think it would look like Christ who delights in his people, who sought their good, even to the point of laying down his life for us, which was linked to his joy. Remember how the author of Hebrews says this? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen, beloved, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before Christ through the way of the cross was the return to his father with every one of his blood-bought children. The joy motivated the Savior's work. So rejoicing in our spouses means having a marriage growing in wisdom, and it, it looks a lot like Jesus rejoicing in you and saving you. As we look to him, we are able with renewed freshness to look at our spouse and say, I rejoice in you. I rejoice in you. You are a priceless treasure to me. You are a gift from God to me. 
But there's another way God grows our marriages in wisdom. He does it with love. He does it with love. Now, this isn't the Beatles crooning out, all you need is love. It's not the sugary, sweet affection that many mistake for love. But love that resembles Paul's instructions to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13, which is so often read when? At weddings. Love that is patient, kind, forgiving, not arrogant and rude, but humble and gracious. Love that does have deep affection with it, but does not stop with mere feelings. Take this example from Proverbs 15, 17. The sage says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. I think it comes across a little bit more strikingly with the New International Version's translation. They say, they translated, uh, better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. Now, maybe if you're a vegan, that sounds really great. But I'm a meat eater. And I'm going to often go for the fattened calf. Now, on the surface of that proverb, may not seem like... What does that have to do with marriage? But in God's providence, for most of us, the largest amount of our meals that we will share with another human is with who? Our spouse. Followed by our children and our parents. And the sage says that a table made with love that's paltry and sparse is better than a feast without it. So it's always Christmas time in my heart. In Charles Dickens' classic, I mean, I know the people of Redeemer, you're going to get sick of hearing Dickens, but that's just the reality. And, but I think Christmas Carol captures a reality here. In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, I think there's a beautiful picture of this proverb on display when Scrooge witnesses the Christmas meal at the house of his clerk, Bob Cratchit. This is how Dickens describes the affair. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought the goose was the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course. And in truth, it was something very like it in that house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigor. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took tiny him beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everyone, not forgetting themselves. And mounting guard upon their post, crammed spoons into their mouth, lest they should shriek for the goose before their turn came to be helped. At last, the dishes were set on and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Miss Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it in the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight rose all around the board. And even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! Then at the end, after the pudding was served, we read this. On the lips of Bob. Oh, what a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said. And calmly, too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. 
Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind. She would confess she had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. The meal, as small as it was, as meager as it was, had so much love undergirding it that the whole family overflows with praise and joy as they enjoy the meal together. Love in our marriages, love rooted in rejoicing in our spouses and in our children is a means of having wisdom fill our marriage and satisfaction overflow. It is wise, hear me, husbands and wives, it is wise to give your love unreservedly to your spouse, to freely lavish the best that you have upon the one whom the Lord has given you. Now, the the reality is, is that some may feel like the love is fleeting. Maybe you feel even this morning, love doesn't even seem present anymore. What if your marriage feels the strain of loveless meals? I would point you again to this reality. There is real hope for renewed love for your spouse through Jesus Christ. Jesus can restore what sin steals. The hope for marriage is to grow in love is not simply another romantic getaway or a vow renewal ceremony, whatever those are, but a return to Christ. We look to Christ who gives heart-melting love so that we might in turn freely give that love to our spouses. Listen to how Paul sets the stage. Before he says anything about marriages, he says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul reminds us that we are loved, and because we are, we are loved by God in Christ, we are able to give that love, and that does apply to our marriages. Most certainly, it applies in these contexts. This is what Jesus does for you. He enables you to love by his great love shed abroad in your heart. Friend, I would, I would encourage you with this as well. If the Lord Jesus rose from the dead after three days, he can restore love to marriages that are loveless. And it will start not by you looking at the other person and trying really, really hard to love them again. No, it'll come by looking at Christ who bore your sins in his body on the tree and rose again, conquering death, giving you eternal life. That's the love that will transform your heart and then allow that to flow out into love for your spouse. Third way God makes our marriages wise, he does it with words. Look back at Proverbs 31, verses 28 and 29, towards the end of the passage we read at the beginning. We see this. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Notice that the children are praising their mom, right? But the reason that they're doing that, did you catch that in the text? Because they've seen 
their dad do it. This means that husbands, I'm talking to you directly here, you ought to set the tone in your home of edifying and encouraging and praising your wife and do it in front of your kids. So that your kids learn how to treat their moms and they see her even in part for the treasure that she is. I love how Ray Ortland talks about this. He says it so well. He says, a husband cultivates his wife by setting a high tone of praise in their home. No put-downs, no fault-finding, no insults, not even neutral silence, but rather bright, positive, life-giving praise. The picture here is of the wise woman giving herself to her family and to others, and she is receiving praise from her husband and children at home and from her community in the gates. God wants to fill our homes and our churches with this beautiful wisdom where men are not passive, but overtly cultivating the excellence of their wives, and those women are thriving. It should not be, at this point, after about four sermons where we've talked about heart and words, that we're here with words again. Words revealing wisdom or folly. So the question I would ask you is, how is your talk with your spouse? Husbands, does your wife actually know that she is your treasure because you tell her repeatedly, not just that one time? Do you regularly speak to your bride as the way Jesus would gently speak to her and encourage her with tenderness and love, with affection and care. Wives, the wisdom is transferable. Do you rejoice in your husband and do you tell him what he is to you? Do you speak to him as Christ would speak to him, encouraging him in the labor of his hands and the work of his days? God gives marriages wisdom where his instructions to care with words is heeded and followed. When we do that, we see wisdom grow. I don't think the sage is telling only husbands build up their wives with words, but the assumption is that Christ-saturated and Christ-honoring speech is being given in this home and it's being received by both the husband and the wife. But just as we are given that positive picture, we also are warned about using our words badly in our marriages. As the sage tells us in Proverbs 21, 19, somewhat comically again, it's better to live in a desert land than when a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Or 21, 9. This image is, again, funny. It's better to live on the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. I'd rather be out in the elements on the roof than in the shelter with you. Like, that's what he's he's saying. I mean, those are pretty clear pictures. Quarrelsome words drive wisdom out of a marriage. They push it out. And the wisdom of these Proverbs is transferable, meaning it is equally true, husbands, that a wife would rather live in the desert or on the corner of a roof than with a, a quarrelsome and fretful husband. The words we use as husbands speaking to our wives and wives speaking to our husbands have a great power. Do you not remember the word wisdom? The power of life and death is in the tongue. We've seen words bring that power with them. 
poisonous speech will kill wisdom in a marriage. It'll even kill the marriage. Whereas wholesome encouragement serves to enliven and strengthen our marriages. And this is how God fills our marriages with joy, love, and wisdom. So I want to offer a real practical way for you to rejuvenate your marriage today. So what if leaving here today as a follower in Christ, you apply today's message by sitting down with your wife, opening your Bible, and reading Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, together as a couple, remembering together the love God has for you both in Christ. And then what if you spent some time? I'm not going to prescribe the time. What if you spent some time telling one another what goodness God has brought to your life through them? Actually saying to one another encouraging things. If that is too great, I realize that for some that may feel like asking you to climb Everest. Yeah, climbing Everest. (laughs) What is one affirming thing you can say to your spouse today? We could start there. One encouraging thing word that you can give as a gift to your spouse today. And then build on it, piece by piece, with your words. Over time, the language of a marriage shifting to sound more like the language of Christ drives the roots of life and wisdom deep into the heart of a marriage, thus strengthening and deepening the love and joy that grows throughout the years of devotion. The wisdom of Proverbs for our marriages is not complex. It is hard. And it requires the grace of God at work in you and your spouse to see it grow. But the message of Proverbs is that godly wisdom applied to our marriages brings with it health and vitality. When we treat our marriages with the wisdom of God, we can expect good growth and satisfaction to increase in our marriages. But what if you're not married? All the same wisdom applies. As you pursue a wife, or a husband. Think on these things. Build them into your marriage from the beginning. Have these as signposts for how you will enter into the marriage covenant and apply the wisdom of God from the very beginning. There's another key family relationship that Proverbs addresses with more frequency even than than marriage, and that's how parents and children relate to one another. So we're going to spend just a brief moment. Um, Kids, hang on. I'm going to have something right for you at the end of the service. So I'll give you that right at the end of the sermon. But I want to talk to parents directly for the first part of this section. The lion's share of Proverbs is the voice of a parent speaking to children, most often a father to sons. Now, we've already seen that it is not exclusively the father who's the teacher of the family, and yet the Proverbs do not shy away from placing the leadership burden on dads to instruct and disciple their kids. And what we witness in chapters 1 through 9 and what continues in chapters 10 through 31 is the picture of parents taking time to instruct their children in the wisdom of God. Listen to a few examples, Proverbs 1, 8, and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. 
Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life it will be, and peace they will add to you. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive that you may gain insight. Proverbs 4, 1. Proverbs 5, 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Proverbs 23, 22 through 25. Listen to your father who gave you life. And do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let he, her who bore you rejoice. The picture is that wisdom grows in a family where parents teach their children the ways of God. The sage shows us that the primary teaching voice in the lives of the children whom the Lord has given us should be we who are their parents. And did you notice who's taking the initiative in all of the texts I just read you? The parents. The parents of the Proverbs are not those who are waiting around to be asked questions, but are intentional in instructing their children. Certainly, we welcome questions as parents. We, we actually want to create an environment where our kids can ask us even hard questions and not condemn them for their questions. Yet, the word picture most often employed throughout the book of Proverbs is of the parent taking the initiative with the child to instruct, to give wise counsel and instruction to their children. Now, that reveals... An obvious requirement beforehand, doesn't it? You can't give what you haven't received. If our children would grow up in godly wisdom, it will require us as parents to be devoted to all the things that the Proverbs say to the children, the things that the parents in Proverbs are giving the children. This can be boiled down to, I think, three large categories. First, the fear of the Lord, which we have seen already over and over that this is a phrase denoting reverence and relationship with God. Our children see our relationship with God. They see how we respond to the Lord. They see how we pursue Him. They see us pray, or do they not? Dad, Mom, wisdom in parenting begins in your heart and your actions before it comes out of your mouth. The weight of your devotion to God is what will actually clarify the wisdom you're trying to impart to your children. Before they hear it and understand your words, think about the smallest among us. When our children are not yet able to speak, they can see. Even as they can't understand what we say, they can see. Before they will hear and understand your words, they will witness your relationship to the Lord with their eyes. And I think we have a picture of this in Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The vibrant relationship that dads and moms have with God is a blessing both to them and to their children. If we would give wisdom to our children in fearing the Lord, let us be diligent to display what that fear looks like in our own lives. The second large category is God's word. 
If you notice in the Proverbs I mentioned just a moment ago, there was content that parents gave to their children. There was wisdom, commandments, teaching, and instructions. The role we have as parents is to teach our children from God's Word, to give them the truth that is not just common sense or street smarts, but the content of God's revelation to His people. The content the sage wanted to prioritize as was God's law, his instructions about how to live given as, or live as his people. And on this side of the cross, of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, we also give our children the law of God, his instruction, and yet we also have the joyous privilege of giving them Jesus Christ, the Lord. We show them a gracious God who redeemed a people out of slavery to Egypt and has accomplished a greater act of redemption by sending his own son, the Lord Jesus, to bear the punishment for our every failure and to lavish upon us the riches of every one of his blessings. Dad and mom, hear me. Give your kids Jesus. Give them Christ. Show them the wonders of the love of God displayed in Christ. Show them the glory of a Savior who took on flesh to live among his people that would despise and reject him and ultimately kill him. Tell them that his death was not a tragic, meaningless act, but the very way God would accomplish forgiveness for every sinner who repents and trusts in him. Tell them that Jesus did not stay dead. Tell them that he's alive and that he's at the right hand of the Father from whence he's coming again to gather every one of his children up and take us to heaven, our eternal home where there's no sorrow, no sickness, or pain forever. Give them Jesus, where the faith that we confess becomes our sight. Tell them that one day, if they would trust in Jesus, they will behold with unveiled faces the very glory of God. We have such great wisdom and good news to give our kids. May we not be found slacking in teaching and instructing our children. Parents, grow in wisdom and then give that wisdom to your kids. Drink deeply from God's word so that you have something precious to give the children God has entrusted to your care. You only have them for a short time. Though we know that the Proverbs are not promises, there is hope in sayings like Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This will, at times, mean a third category, the hard work of discipline with our children. Mom, Dad, it is wise for you to correct and discipline your children. How you choose to do that is a choice you must make. But the option to not do it and neglect correcting your children is not an option you have. So while some of you in the verses I'm getting ready to read may not like the way that the Proverbs specifically teach discipline, I think the principle we can agree on, that we offer the correction our children need, is a non-negotiable reality of our calling as parents. The discipline may be the very help that keeps your children from destruction. Listen to these four Proverbs. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 
Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 17. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Parents, the role we have been given includes the hard work of discipline. Whatever form that takes in your home, correction and discipline is hard in parenting. Yet this is a sacred trust that the Lord has given us as parents. Now hear me. There is not a hint of abuse in any of these proverbs. That would be wickedness, folly, and would defame the God you claim to fear. The picture of this discipline is correction that is rooted in and measured by love. Notice that in each of those proverbs that we saw, it's not getting back at your kids for them making you angry. It's not you simply putting them in their place because they need to remember who mom and dad is. No, no. It's shaping them with a loving heart that they might know the love of God. And here's the hard reality that hits me as I look over the wisdom I'm told to give as a parent because I am face-to-face with the reality of my failures so many, so much as a dad. There are so many things I wish I could take back or do differently. And if I give myself over to those thoughts, despair grows and I feel hopeless. Maybe you're like me. Brother or sister, if you feel like that, know this. Proverbs is not browbeating you to shame you as a parent, but rather you are receiving the good corrective discipline of God yourself that you might be renewed to faithfulness to him in your parenting relationship and faithfulness to your children. Remember how Proverbs helps us develop skill in the art of godly living. Remember, that takes time. Remember how God is patient with you. Remember how God works through broken people to spread his gospel. That all applies to us as parents, too, when we are called to parent. Perhaps you feel the weight of your failures like me as a dad or a mom. But you need not lose hope. For if you have Christ, there's abundant forgiveness and the real promise that he is shaping you into his image. And as you receive the forgiveness from Christ, perhaps you may need to today seek forgiveness from your kids. I think there is a powerful portrait of the gospel in a parent who is unafraid to admit their failure and seek forgiveness from their children. From a dad who can say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. You know, my sin still shows just how much your daddy needs Jesus. From a mom who can say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Forgive me, mommy still needs Jesus to change her too. When parents model that type of gospel repentance in the home, I mean, the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ is sown into the hearts of our kids. that The Holy Spirit can fan into flame. Now, kiddos, I promise there'd be something for you today. So what about you kids, young ones, older children? What help does the Proverbs have for you? I've been talking for a long time. But if you've got just a minute, kids, listen up. What does God want to give you from Proverbs? 
he would encourage you with this. You ready? Listen. Listen. Listen to your mom and your dad. Listen to your parents. They are not perfect. They will fail. But they are for your good. Listen when mom and dad teach you. Listen when they read the Bible to you. Listen when mom and dad tell you how Jesus changed their lives. Listen when mom and dad tell you how Jesus is still changing them. Little ones, boys, girls, young men, young women, listen closely to your parents when they teach you the things of God. Because there is no greater gift that mommy and daddy can give you than the treasures of God. The treasure of knowing Jesus. Listen to them. Proverbs invites us all to come to God as children and listen and receive every good gift from the Lord and to rest in his wisdom and to build our marriages and our homes on the renewing grace that comes through Jesus working in us and making us wise for salvation and for life in this world. So I want to end with this call for all of us. Let us each dive deep into God's word and drink from the wisdom of God that through his spirit working in us, we will all grow in our family wisdom. Let's pray.